Look, I, I really don't remember how this thing works. Listen, you can't broadcast without a license. Uh, unless this is an emergency, you're gonna have to get off the band. Hey, pal, my whole life's an emergency. Welcome back to Quaid in Full, the podcast with all the fox to give about actor Dennis Quaid. I'm Chekhov's Mets trivia, Sarah D. Bunting, and I'm here, as always, with inadvertently amusing stock tip, Jeb Lund. Hi, Jeb. Mmm, timed hams. And joining us today for the season six premiere is the chief TV critic at Rolling Stone, Northern Light, Alan Seppenwall. Alan! Hey, guys! Yay! Before we kick off season six of this fine podcast with Frequency, the year 2000 time travel Mets ham radio serial killer thriller and a question mark. Jeb, do we have any pod business since the break? We've got seismographers out there. We still have no stirrings at graveside for the Denisons. We're not hearing anything from the ether either. I think we're safe. Okay. Well, let's... uh, Get out the old ham radio and make sure that he's not lurking around (laughs) 30 years ago, which is, I guess, the best segue that we can manage for the plot summary of Frequency. (laughs) Buckle up, (laughs) y'all. Did I mention we record these out of order? We do. Oh, I've I've got stories about, like, just remind me to not get off before I tell you my Toby Emmerich story. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, we'll get to him. In October of 1999, NYPD homicide slash whiskey dick and future Jesus John Sullivan, Jim Caviezel, is living in the same mid-century production-designed Queen's house he lived in as a six-year-old in 1969. Nice. Nice. When the Amazing Mets were in the World Series and his father, firefighter Frank Sullivan, Dennis Quaid, perished in a warehouse fire. After one of cinema's favorite manipulative shots, the fireman's smoking helmet hitting the ground in slow-mo, and some clunky setup putting the boar back in Aurora Borealis, a friend's kid happens across an old trunk under the stairs at the Sullivan House. The trunk contains not only a helpfully expositional scrapbook about Frank's heroism in death, but also Frank's old ham radio. John fires up the machine, and in just one example of frequencies taking the economy of characters to a hints from Heloisian length, the first person he makes contact with is Frank, sitting at the same desk and using the same radio exactly 30 years earlier. Yay? John can't resist violating the Prime Directive, though, and warns Frank about the warehouse fire he died in in John's timeline, and using Game 2 box score Arcana to prove he's really from the future. And Frank survives the fire this time, which jumps everyone into another timeline in which Frank dies of lung cancer instead. But John still remembers all the shtees from the original timeline, and is still partnered with his father's bestie, Satch, Andre Brower, and still has his own bestie from the block, Gordy, Noah Emmerich, neither of whom does anything in response to John asking them repeatedly about his own father's demise and sweating like Tony La Russa during a traffic stop, besides exchanging <laughs> significant glances. One suspects that this parallels the way studio execs greeted a script in which a triumphant New York Metropolitan Baseball Club 
not only whipped the Orioles in all the available timelines, but also helped solve a 30-year-old serial murder case whose file John and Frank keep fucking up with their little chats. But in our timeline, screenwriter Toby Emmerich became a super producer, Frequency became a TV series, and despite the patent absurdity of literally everything from the selective Lone Pine mauling of various 1999 futures, to Dennis Quaid's Queen's accentry as Frank, to the quote special effects in the final fight sequence, the shit sorta works? For our heroes, as father and son team up to save their mom slash wife's life from a serial killer cop, and on the audience as, spoiler, Quaid's climactic appearance festooned with silly putty and dime store Halloween decoration cobwebs turns on the waterworks for this guy every fucking time. And then there's Sandlot Baseball and Beaming, hashtag Let's Go Mets, the end. Gentlemen, have I missed anything? Well, there is a considerable amount of Mitchell. Mitchell! In the form of Elizabeth Mitchell. Mitchell! Which mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like was left out just because I wanted to say Mitchell. But <laughs> that's really all I <laughs> And And Noah Emmerich as, as, is it Gordo, the best friend, who yes. is part of the running joke about Yahoo? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> baby Michael Sarah as Gordo Jr. And relevant to some of our interests, in one scene, which I did manage to clip for the visual aids, Terry Serpico as Conhead Worker number one. No, that is not Anthony Michael Hall. Linda Holmes, if you're listening to this, definitely Terry Serpico. Look, I just want to make sure we can discuss the shoe polish play at some point, okay? Absolutely. There is absolutely no reason that this should succeed except its own wily coyote, not looking down over the canyon esque belief. <laughs> <laughs> that the father-son like chemistry and just you know father-son stuff should prevail and based on contemporary reviews that's actually true like ebert gave it three and a half out of four and talks about the physics that could allow the plot to exist but then says it doesn't matter because it's about how we talk to our ghosts uh the New York Times' Stephen Holden argued that the sentimentality works because the film believes it's going to, but he also says Dennis Quaid's New York accent is, quote, perfect. Mm. Couple notes, <laughs> Steve. Not sure I agree with your police work there, Steve. Yeah, I really, I really, I really don't. And then uh, for the AV Club, Keith Phipps th- thought that uh, as a sort of sentimental supernatural story of family, it should have had the courage of its convictions and not fucked everything up with an across-time serial killer thriller played by the poor man's Tim Roth. Some of that may have been silent, but he did think the serial killer stuff was the weaker choice. Alan, what are your had you seen this movie before and what were your thoughts on it? If so, then and definitely now. I've seen this movie many times. I own it on DVD, which will eventually lead us to my Toby Emmerich story. Uh, I agree with you that it's a mess and has no business working. It also came out about a year and a half after my own father died, so I was kind of like putty in its hands, <laughs> especially that first hour leading up to him, you know, John saving Frank from the fire and all of that. And then the serial killer stuff is really messy and, you know, much more gibberishy. 
But again, when, you know, old man Quaid shows up with the shotgun, you know, <laughs> I, just, I was a little puddle right there. So yeah. there are so many things I could I could and will question about this movie. And yet I really enjoy it and, you know, cannot resist it. Yeah, same. And I've watched the whole TV series, too, based on that. And that also managed to work somehow. Jeb, what is your history with Frequency? Well, this came out, again, in the the kind of uh, anything outside the sort of periphery of, of college in a dorm just didn't quite penetrate. So I had no experience with this. And I was thinking, OK, well, this is going to be I don't know, the one word and the frequency. It seemed like it was, you know, in the same sort of family of movies as um, Russell Crowe is a digitized serial killer uh. or something. And, <laughs> You know, I, I was expecting something <laughs> virtuosity, just, uh, a camp classic, <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, like somewhere between virtual virtuosity and equilibrium, right? There could be time travel, there could be gun kata, there could be I don't know, you know. Mm -hmm. And as I was watching it, I was like, well, this is not what was promised. And then, as soon as I would start to, uh, I guess, acclimate to what the movie was doing, it would it, it would take a step up and and add something else, like uh, you know, now we're a serial killer thriller and. The whole experience is like getting one of those ultra large burritos and that has like a couple things maybe you don't want in it, but like, whatever, what are you going to do? It's just overstuffed and it's $8 and it hangs off the plate and it's going to be delicious. Don't overthink it. Okay. I like that comp, actually. <laughs> What's funny to me is that there is a lot of stuff in the first, I'm going to say 15 or 20 minutes that is sort of unworkable to the point where I was really questioning, like, did I like this movie? Why did I <laughs> like this movie? Starting with, you know, let's set the scene for classic sort of film and television cop who can't maintain personal relationships because of childhood trauma or whatever the hell. And uh, both the actors in this scene seem like they too are impatient to, like, let's get to the frequenting and not waste <clears throat> time with this. But the clumsiness of the exposition is really noteworthy and i re-kept dawson's creek for a long time so i don't i don't say that lightly here's a clip so that's it samantha you're just walking out i've been walking out for six months john you just didn't notice or care you're right we should have quit a long time ago Sorry. I know it's my fault. I can't change Sam. I wish I could, but I can't. No, John. It's that you won't change. Oh, God. And that's what hurts so much. <sighs> I mean, I kind of feel like the director, who is a veteran of a lot of cop shows, including NYPD Blue, Hill Street Blues, and Cop Rock, <laughs> should have been like, well, we'll shoot it. But we're not going to put it in the final cut. Like, oh, come on. Given how little this character ends up mattering to the to the overall, except for one scene where she doesn't recognize them because they're in a new timeline now. I feel like they need to leave it in there because otherwise you've got to be able to when they get to the happy ending where he's finally fixed everything he possibly can in the timeline and gets the Marty McFly conclusion. <laughs> I guess they want the audience to know who the hell she is. But no, that's a very bad scene. Yeah, 
if you are not focusing on everybody other than the leads, she's difficult to spot at the end. She's sort of there, you know, as part of, uh, I guess, like the the family larger family group and the payoff for that is not really worth the uh, the price that you pay up front for the uh starter kit of, of emotional divorce recrimination <laughs> yeah but then it sort of figures out what it's doing the movie and just is like completely convinced that it's going to get away with it and i think that's why it does like by the time you get to that scene which is also the special effects there are fairly mediocre but when he's burning that message into the desk in 1969 and it's showing up in 1999 i st- i still kind of get chills it it works it has absolutely no business working and i'm not sure how it does it and it's also it's a little difficult to clip in this famously visual medium of podcasting, like clips that are going to sort of communicate the way that the communication across timelines is set up effectively and the way they do that with the scrapbooks and them running back and forth in the window seat and stashing the wallet there and all this stuff. I mean, I pulled a clip, but it it still doesn't quite explain how this manages to get you. Alan, any theories from a structural well, standpoint I, mean, I think there's a simplicity to some of this i mean a lot of it is way too messy and in particular the idea that john has memories of every single timeline which keeps changing like right. that would just make him a basket case by the end of the movie it would not be a happy ending he would just you know need to be institutionalized somewhere yeah it was bu- it's a buffy and earshot problem like there's just too much too many channels but, open. Anyway, go on. But the idea, as you said, like he's he's trying. To, it's the very first person he gets on the ham radio is Frank. They're at the same desk in the same house in different times, and so the idea of Frank accidentally like burns the desk and John sees it, and that's how they both realize what's going on uh, and and accept it. And then later when he burns the message, like that's simple. It's just compact. It's two guys in a room, thirty years apart. That's effective. And the idea of a father and son being separated, it's like it's an elemental thing, which when the movie is focusing just on that, it's really gangbusters. It's when it starts doing the million other things it's trying to do when it runs into trouble. Right. I will say on those million other things, like I think whenever you see a time travel film, you know, there has to be at least one character who acknowledges that we've all seen time travel films and that we would have like a a bucket list of what we would do would we have would that we had a time desk right <laughs> and so you right. do get those i mean like there is a bunch of other stuff sort of you know thrown in there like the yahoo bit but like if you had a time desk you would want to like figure out a way to make somebody wealthy from it so you do have some of the exciting wish fulfillment stuff thrown in there along with this really compact way of of cross-decade communications. So you do get that little rush that you're supposed to get from, I'm fucking around with time, that at least, you know, keeps uh, an emotional fill-up going, and you're like, okay, well, let's see what else he's going to do with this. And I think maybe that helps us kind of slip into, well, I mean, as long as you're fucking around with time, maybe you are going to get involved in a multi-decade manhunt for a serial killer. I don't know what your preferences are, but I can see how that's a slippery slope. Right. Well, and... I mean, there is something to be said also for the pacing of it. Like, it, it is overstuffed and a mess, but the time that you might spend thinking about, like, well, why are some things the same and some different? And did they have a 
physicist consult on this or like you don't have time <laughs> to think about that stuff and the movie is just like don't worry about it like it's it's so confident that the things that it has chosen to remain stable across all timelines are stable and that you'll just go with it that it ends up working that it just maintains momentum. I think that's key. And that's also why in the early going, when there's all this establishing stuff and these kind of stagey, kludgy exposition scenes that you're you're thinking more about how this has no business working. But then when it gets into gear, you don't. Mm-hmm. Just a theory. So I guess we should hear the Emmerich story. Okay, so... <laughs> don't bury the lead. The movie climaxes with um, the Sean Doyle character, the, the cop-turned-serial killer, attacking both father and son in the same house 30 years apart. And the problem with this is, you know, which occurred to me the very first time I watched, <laughs> the and it's become more singular. glaring. Okay. <laughs> okay. There, oh, the biggest problem okay. with this... <laughs> Is that by the time this happens, you just you're pretending that basically time is moving like equally in 1969 and 1999. By the time this is happening in 1999, the 1969 timeline, Satch already knows that this guy is the killer. He is a fugitive from justice. He has no longer. He was no longer hanging around in a diner one day, waiting for Jim Caviezel to wander in and say, "I know you're the serial killer," even though you're just this respected retired cop or whatever. He would have never met Jim Caviezel. There's no way in hell he would be in Jim Caviezel's house trying to hunt him down. And so, when I got the movie on DVD, I listened to the commentary. That's how much I enjoy this movie, <laughs> wow. despite its abundant flaws. And it's Toby Emmerich, and I forget if Greg Hoblet, the director, is on there too, for it's just Toby Emmerich. But towards the end of the commentary, he starts making fun of the idea of, like, why is anyone still listening to me talk? (laughs) Tell you what, if anyone is still listening at this point, this is my email address. And he recites his email address, and he (laughs) says... Please write to me. Um, and I think it's something, I think it was like Noah, Noah Emmerich, his brother, had like made him a bet about this. Uh, and okay. so I sent him an email saying like, you owe your brother five bucks. Uh, <laughs> and in the context of the email, I say, by the way, while I have you, did you guys ever talk about what the hell the, the bad guy is doing there in 1999 when he, you know, would have been a fugitive from justice for the last 30 years? And he wrote, you know what? We talked about it and we realized it didn't make sense. But the idea of both of them fighting this guy 30 years apart while they're on the radio together was just too good to resist. So we left it in and hoped there wouldn't be too many people like you who noticed. <laughs> that's pretty much what I that's pretty much what I would expect. That's a great story, yeah. though, that it's like that deep in the commentary. And he's like, OK, all two of you, let's <laughs> let's hear it. Did he say if he ever got any other emails? Uh, I don't know. And I, and I believe the emails were connected to an account I don't have anymore. So I can't go back and look for them. Dang. Oh, that's a shame. Well, I mean, if he's listening to this, he can email us or DM us at Quaid and Full Pod on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> please please think, email my pod wife. <laughs> I think that uh, I think that's all I have on the movie generally. Any odds and ends that we should talk about before we we rate this bad boy? Shoe polish play. We got. I mean, the, yeah. the sequence where Brower and Elizabeth Mitchell are in the diner, and he's like trying to warn her, "Look, your husband is a serial killer. He's going to go to jail." And then he hears, like, in the ball games on the background, and the announcer says, "Oh my God, it's a shoe polish play." 
And Quaid has just told him exactly how the whole game is going to go. And he's like, oh, wait a minute. I just told you this terrible news, but now I have to watch a ball game. (laughs) And the way that Andre Brower plays it, you know, is so funny. And at the time, like, he'd done a little bit of comedy on Homicide, but not a lot. But you can just sort of, like, the expression on his face is so delightful. And especially, like, when the Mets, like, go ahead and he knew exactly what was going to happen. He turns and he flashes that smile. Uh Like, that works for me every goddamn time. Yep. I love it. Same. That he's both psyched that his friend is not actually a serial killer and was right about this but also psyched about the mets brower yes and also like that time travel works somehow it's like it's all these things at once yeah right and all all those and and just sort of wrapped underneath the like i've just told you this horrible thing and i realize i'm looking away from you and i'm consciously watching a ball game and making you wait but (laughs) i can't stress how important it is that i watch this ball game now i know you've heard that your entire life from other men but this time i have to insist it is literally a matter of life or death me watching this ball game right now yeah he's so good in this this character is a complete reactive mess that brower makes into a coherent person that there's also like little Pendleton notes. Yeah. In oh, it. yeah. Just that little yeah. scene of him in the box. You yeah. Know, like, like yes. oh, from the future. Like, oh, <laughs> burr. It's golden here. And here, okay. So getting back to the Morty McFly of it all, like, what is Satch's relationship with John Like over the next few decades? knowing what he knows, and I guess Frank's relationship with him as well, because it's like, well, we've got to wait 30 years to talk to this kid about any of this. Yeah. Well, and how much, like, once Frank is talking to him in that timeline, like, how much of that is, yeah, it you can't think about it too much. Or no, not at all. Break. Not at all. That, and obviously the other thing you can't think about too much is uh, the Aurora Borealis at that time yes. of year, localized entirely above the kid's room. <laughs> Yeah. May may I see it? In in Queens, New York. Sure. It is a nice touch, though, that when the the final timeline puts itself in place, I guess after Sean Doyle gets his hand blown off in 69, suddenly the furniture all becomes old people furniture because it's like, oh, Frank is still alive. He still lives here. Caviezel no longer lives in this house. He's just randomly here fending off a serial killer because that's what the plot demands. Yeah. Right. Well, they had a physicist on set to explain how a woman's touch would have changed the furniture continuum. I think right. is the... <laughs> the and there was also an IKEA brand representative. <sighs> the the only like really I mean, obviously at the beginning of the movie has some expository sour notes. The only real sour note that I had at the movie um later, as you know, you're just sort of with the freight train of momentum, was the transition when he interviews, I guess, uh, Shepard's roommate or something, and then we transition to him walking into the bar that uh, Shepard, the serial killer, is in. And that transition was, like, I think the budget ran out right before they did it. It's just the most Stargate SG-1 kind of, <laughs> like, uh, uh, the, the visual palette <laughs> was, was very uh, direct to cable, I guess. And his name is Jack Shepard. Guys, <laughs> guys, come on. Yeah. There's way too many timelines right now. Yeah, th- there was some budge and then some shots. Like there's one overhead shot where it's like a time lapse of him learning to ride his bike where there's a bunch of different yeah. exposures of the kid and the dad that I was like, I want to hate this, but I don't. It's doing the thing that it 
it needs to do from its heart this giant supernatural cheese wheel of a movie <laughs> which is funny what you say jeb though about like the budget because this does look like kind of a cheap movie mm-hmm. and greg hoblet at the time he'd done tv like sarah talked about he'd come off nypd blue back when that was like the big sensation of pop culture and then his first like, feature film is primal fear yeah big hit turns ed norton into a star Mm-hmm. Then he did Fallen, which I don't really remember, but like his career at this point was still in a place where he was getting movie stars and you would think he would get some kind of budget. And this is very much on the low end of a mid-budget kind of drama from that period. Yeah, there's there's a couple of shots where this is more like a curio and not really an error, but um, there's a lot of like handheld whipping the camera around in that underwater fight call in 1969 which like that was not it was just not necessary to have that and to blow your any of your budget on that yeah but the camera whips a little too far to the left at whatever jersey pier they're on and you see the twin towers in the shot and then the the operator's like whoops and whips it back to the right (laughs) (laughs) that will also be in the visual aids follow us on twitter um yeah there's a ton of mistakes there's a ton of scenes that don't work there's a you know pile of cobwebs on dennis quaid's head at the end i don't care i cried again nine for me on the movie <laughs> Alan, sobbed. i sobbed again this time every time when he shows up and he hugs and says i'm still here chief i mean i'm i'm just a man i'm not invulnerable so <laughs> so what's your rating one to ten I think maybe an eight, just because th- th- this is the first time I've watched it in maybe 15 years. Uh-huh. And, like, I knew that there was the serial killer story, but it felt much more jarring this time when we go from, I've just saved my father and everything's good, and that's the first hour of the movie, and almost immediately we're into serial killer stuff. And I know it's necessary to some degree to drive the plot, but I found myself really wishing that the movie somehow was not that. So I will go eight. Yeah, I mean... Same. And I'm rank I'm rating it too high, but uh I'm sticking with it. Jeb, what do you got? I was gonna say about a seven point five. I mean, again, keeping with the like the overstuffed burrito kind of thing. Like it's not perfect. I mean, I think we if we'd taken some things out and maybe let more of the the intergenerational conversation breathe, you could have had a smarter, I don't know, more emotionally resonant movie. Mm. But uh that's not the movie they made. And uh, that's fine. You know, they they stuffed the burrito. I ate the whole damn thing. Um, I'm not going to pretend it's perfect, though. So 7.5. Yep. Fair enough. Yeah, it's it'll stick to your ribs in all the timelines. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Quaid qua Quaid. Now, look, this stabilizes the, the Queen's quote accent. But, oh, boy, <laughs> is it. Is it Roof Stoof? Here's a short clip from like minute three, which kind of gives you a sense of what you're going to be dealing with that, you know, it yaws all over the place from New Orleans, where firefighting is a way of life, like a pig loves corn, to the Bronx, to, you know, back to Texas, always. Uh, Here's a short clip. Frank, you're not going to make it. There's not enough time. What? Mr. World Series, got a chance. Give me my tool. <laughs> There's another that's like, I hear you, Commander. That was like, <laughs> were, were, was that phonetic? Like, what are we doing here? But like the rest of the movie, writ large, he believes it. He believes he's doing it. 
And sometimes he is doing it. And then other times it's very Houston up in that little office. And it's like, I I don't know. It's not that bothersome to call it perfect. Like, I don't understand Stephen Holden. Like, if you bought it, that's fine. But don't hang a light on it either way. It's it's best (laughs) not to look too closely. He's also about 10 years too old for the role. Like, mm. you, a fireman in 1969 who's got a kid the age John is then, like, would be somewhere in his early to mid-30s. And Quaid, I think, was 45. But he also looks like Dennis Quaid, so he gets away with that. Yep. yep yeah, yep, yep. they smoked more back then. So, you know, he's <laughs> maybe he is 30, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I mean, camel straights. Uh I think it's a good performance generally. I buy him and Caviezel as, like, I buy it. Mm-hmm. They have good father-son chemistry, I guess. Like, they're, you know, barely in any scenes together until towards the end, but that's fine. I don't know how quady this performance is, but let's hear a clip of him trying valiantly to get through all this Mets trivia that he memorized and convince Andre Brower that he's not losing his mind. What if I can prove it to you? Huh? How's that? World Series. Where are they right now? What, fourth, fifth inning? Huh? Well, what if I was to tell you that in the bottom of the sixth inning, the Mets are going to be down three zip, and Cleon Jones, he's going to come to bat. Now, he's going to get hit in the foot by uh, by a wild pitch. And it's going to leave a shoe polish mark on the ball. Now, this is, hear me out, hear me out, all right? He goes to first. Clendenden comes up. He's going to hit a 2-2 pitch into the left field bleachers. This is insane, Frank. And then in the bottom of the seventh, Weiss is going to hit a solo home run. And then Jones and Swoboda, they're going to score in the eighth. The Mets, they're going to win that game five to three. Now, you go watch that game. If it don't happen, I'm a liar. Go watch the game. Yeah. Go watch the Watch the game. <laughs> Frank, they're going to make you for Sissy Clark's murder. And they're going to match that with the Nightingale murders. Do you understand what that means? I, okay, first of all, I feel like this was the 14th take, and it was the only one where he got even close to not stumbling over Clendenin. And they're like, fine, let's use it. But Wild pitch. You, there's definitely a lot more fumbling than you would think Frank would be doing in this moment. Yeah. But he hits Swoboda. Yeah. I mean, I gotta, I gotta give him props for Swoboda. <laughs> Swoboda. Uh, there's a lot here that's unbelievable, as we've been saying, including <laughs> New York Mets heroes of more than one genre of storyline. Sure. But this is not very natural for Quaid, and it shows. But this is also maybe kind of an unfair clip for me to pull. It did make me laugh because his struggles to Queensify this story and get all the names right in the right order, had a dark gravity that also pulled Andre Brower's accent towards it into a black hole <laughs> at the end. But That's uh, true power. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, amen. But generally speaking, I know he worked on it. I could tell he worked on it. It didn't really work for me. But the accent aside, I think this is a pretty good, believable performance that is still not super quady. Alan, would you what would you say? 
in terms of I think that there's a couple of Quaidy moments, and it's it's good that you're asking me this because for another podcast entirely, I just rewatched the right stuff, which to me is like the most Dennis Quaidy of all possible Dennis Quaid performances. Yeah, as, as Quaid yeah. professionals, you may disagree, but mm, that's... no, it's I mean it's in the conversation, it's on the podium. I would say, I mean, okay, he's anyway. the best pilot we ever saw. So yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. So. There's, it's mostly a more sort of serious performance, even in a complete stupid and ridiculous movie. He, but he's there to add the gravity. He's there. You have to believe, like, the shadow that this guy cast over Caviezel's life in order for any of this to make se- emotional sense and work. You've got to really root for him to make it through. And I think Quaid does that. There's a certain degree of cockiness in some of the firefighting scenes. It's maybe not like Gordo Cooper-esque or Mike from Breaking Away or something, but there, there's some quady elements. But the most quady moment in the entire movie is one you can't clip because, again, it's entirely visual. And that's when Shepard walks into the booby-trapped interrogation room and Frank is sitting there at the table with this great cat ate the canary grin uh-huh. and just tosses the exposed wire into the coffee he spilled on the floor. It's like, okay, there's my boy. There's Quaid. Yep. Yeah, there's there's a couple of wolfy grins in there. And um, the Tara Ariano honorary metric, does this character fuck? Yeah, I think I think. Oh, yeah. I think we could say this character fucks. So, the I mean, bit where he drops in on uh, on his lovely bride Elizabeth Mitchell Mitchell uh, has like you know you 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 get the sense that like even if from a nonverbal sense this man will can come in and sweep her if he if she needs swept off her feet really anywhere yeah and uh, but yeah like the little quady hints are there. Yeah. And the shot in that moment when they're dancing to Suspicious Minds, when you see young John and young Gordo watching them kind of awestruck is a, is a very nice touch. Yeah. I actually hated that. <laughs> I thought oh. that was like, really? The kids are like happily watching their parents cheesing. I don't, I, I didn't buy it, but I mean. There were only three channels back then, Sarah. That's true. That's an excellent point. <laughs> and there was no net, but we'll, we'll get to that later um jeb any thoughts on the relative quaintiness of this before we drop a number on him yeah well speaking of dropping a thing uh, i was going to say that jim caviezel was a, a good casting choice because he uh for pretty much all of person of interest maintains the facial expression that we uh when we talk about dennis quaid we we sometimes call the alimentary dilemma <laughs> schrodinger scat he just yeah. has a certain like i don't know what way it's going but i know he's struggling against it yes <laughs> the, there is it a poo nice and it is it is causing conflict yeah but uh, i i think i'm in the same <laughs> kind of trouble uh you know troubled rating metric uh standpoint you're in cuz he's in it a lot yeah. but he's not in it in the the sort of rakish roguish quaid way that we expect he does have you know, some romantic work to do, but, you know, it's also, this is a strange time procedural. So there isn't as much room for the, the, uh, you know, expansive sort of gregarious quaid that we're used to, but he does a good job with it. So you're like, you know, how do I rate it relative to all these different, um, you know, metrics going in that are maybe a little bit at odds because sometimes quaidiness is not necessarily goodness. So, right. Um, well, how we rate it is we make the guest go first. Alan, one to ten. That's right. How quaity is oh, this uh, so shit? Here's my question. Am I rating it on how good a performance it is or how quaity a performance how it is? How quaity a performance it is. Uh, I got a, maybe like a five. Huh. Okay. Five or six. It's just, it's, I like the movie. It's not, as I said, like what I tend to think of when I think of Quaid. I think he's good in it. It's just, yeah. 
All right, so I'm going to... Like, Kurt Russell could have played Frank or something. Well, and did in Backdraft, but that's another conversation. Um, yep. I'm going to leave that at a five and a half for you. Jeb, you want me to You want me to do this? I can go ahead and go. I was going to do a, a six just because of the, the dilemma I was talking about where, you know, again, like, you can see little bits of the charm and he's doing good work with it, but unfortunately it's not quite working toward the the quady archetypes we're used to but with the flashes and just with the i mean like he really does kind of invest you know his big dennis quaid is a giant labrador of a person in like <laughs> understanding like why you would want him as your dad and why you would miss him like you know this this big floppy bipedal you know representation of goodwill and like having a nice time and so that works like yeah i i would miss dennis quaid as my dad if dennis quaid was my dad and he was gone i i can see how that would be a pleasant experience yeah i i think that we need to recalibrate the quaidometer for this this dilfy period <laughs> yes that that we're <laughs> in because this is you know i think that this will be maybe not the lead in the obit but it's going to be one of the top things mentioned is this role. I think that he looks great, relatively believable as a firefighter. This like you understand why they were like let's put Quaid in this. There's a couple grins, there's some of that like hip cock classic Quaid blocking a few times. Grabbing his lower back with mm -hmm. his palms. Yes. And going like whoop, that I don't do that in this character. The Remy. Was... Yep. It's absolutely the Remy. Um, so I would rate it. I mean, the, I got to mark off for the accent, but I'm giving it an eight because he fucks. I would. There's some grins <laughs> and he's pretty good. It, like despite an accent, I'm not sure if that's mitigating or aggravating, but I'm leaving it at an eight. You know, maybe this this is the sort of thing where, you know, we're, when we're at the series, the conclusion of the series run, you know, 13 years hence, and we're going back and like, where did we, you know, not recalibrate the metrics as the the sort of the oeuvre migrated in terms of its conception? Like, you know, maybe this is the big drop the ball and I'm going to be like, you know what, that needed to be two, two ticks higher, but uh, I'll, I'll stick with it for now. All right. Alan, thank you for sticking with us through this uh, hey i'm 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 happy to come back when you get to the rookie you know there's there's sort of the the quaid touchstones for me <laughs> absolutely we'll see you in a few weeks then because it's not far away oh god all right see <laughs> now i've done it yeah <laughs> next time on quaid and full we'll be getting stuck in traffic with the av club's zach handlin in the meantime, check out our show notes, which we burnt into the surface of your desks, and follow the podcast on Twitter at Quaid and Full Pod. And there's even more content at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Quaid and Full. Quaid and Full is hosted by Sarah D. Bunting and Jeb Lund and edited by Jeb Lund. Don't subscribe yet? You don't need a license, so go sign up wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review Quaid and Full so other people can find it. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. So this is what people used before the net, huh? Well, not exactly. I